In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Whoever designed this podium? I want to stand up, but I want to be heard. This is a cha- this this is a challenge. <laughs> I didn't realize quite how divided our church was until one Sunday I was sitting further back, and as we were kneeling and saying the creed, I happened to look up, and as we talked about Christ uh, rising and ascending, I realized that half the people had already risen and half hadn't. And I thought, oh no. (laughs) Uh, Megan is responsible for this sermon. (laughs) She wanted to know why I always waited and rose later than everybody else. So I don't don't know why people rise when they do. I I haven't asked people in the church and I haven't studied the history of the liturgy. Um, But I've been asked to give uh, an account of why I rise when I do, so here goes, and it fits with the readings at hand. The Christian faith is one of descent and ascent. That shapes every every part of the Christian faith. There's a descent into sin, and there's the ascent into God. There's the descent into Egypt, and then the ascent towards Mount Sinai, and then towards the Promised Land, where the tabernacle and eventually the temple make Mount Sinai permanent. There's the descent, and there's the ascent. There's the descent into death, and there's the ascent into life. A life where God satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Uh, Augustine's Confessions is thoroughly shaped by this line of thinking. In the first five books of the Confessions, it's one downward movement further and further into murkier and murkier waters until he's about to die as he voyages from Carthage to Rome. And the death imagery gets stronger and stronger and stronger as you work through those five books, as he works further and further into his sin and into his misunderstanding of who God is, to the point that he's running away from his mother who's praying for him, and he about dies of sickness. But right in the middle of book five, which is the hinge from books one through nine, he shifts his journey and starts to move towards Milan. And that begins the upward ascent that reverses all the wrongs that had been happening through the first five books. Now they all get reversed in the next four and a half books. Um, as, As we end up with he and his mother sharing in a contemplative vision of God that then brings to completion what should have begun in book one but didn't. Because the Christian life is about descent, but then ascent. Dante's Divine Comedy does the same thing. You'd think in the first book, the descent, you know, in his descent into hell, that he's just descending. He's it's a whole journey the wrong direction, and then he'd need to turn around and come right back out, right? No, Dante does some really interesting things with descent and ascent. Because in descending, the way he's organized the world, sorry, I have to, I have to hunch over to be near the microphone. <laughs> the way he's organized the world, he's down on the bottom. And he has to descend to the center of the earth. 
But as it turns out, that descent, he then keeps going the other direction to get, get out the other side of earth, journeys up Mount Purgatory and into the heavens so that the whole time he was descending, that was the beginning of his ascent. The descent into sin is not merely facing our own sin. It's facing our own sin with Christ who bore that sin. So the descent itself is an ascent. It's in a movement towards God, first by facing our sin with God, but then ascending into the divine life. Now, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is one of, the, one of the passages that captures this whole theme and sums it up so beautifully. There's a twofold descent in here. First, Christ makes him, or God, the eternal son, makes himself nothing. In an act, in the greatest act of humility, our cosmos has ever known. He makes himself nothing by becoming man. But that isn't enough of a descent. The descent continues. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. So there's a descent and a further descent, a humiliation and a further humiliation. And it's easy to pay attention to that part, but the second part matters just as much, if not more. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That therefore is really interesting. That's the father saying, because you have done this, because you have descended, and descended for all these people. Because you have descended, therefore I will exalt you. There's a descent and an ascent, and they go together. So the death and resurrection of Jesus is the key to shaping the whole, the whole of the Christian life. First, it's a matter of walking with Christ and taking up our cross daily. The Christian life isn't just one of descent in the sense of sinning, Although, of course, we do that at times. The New Testament is full of the epistles dealing with the sin in the different churches. It's a more, but it's more a matter of death to self, of weakness, of impotence, of humiliation, of turning the other cheek. The New Testament is full of language like this that just resounds with themes of death, of emptying, of giving up oneself, giving up one's will. And the paradigmatic expression of that is in Gethsemane or before that in the Mount of Olives where Jesus is saying, not my will, but yours be done. And the Christian faith is full of that emptying, full of it, empty, 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 empty. But that's just half. It's also a matter of walking with Christ. As Ephesians says, now this passage, oh, this passage, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, okay, we're used to all that, made us alive with Christ. Okay, we're used to that too. There's death and there's coming back to life. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Yeah, we're used to thinking about that too. It is by grace you have been saved. Okay, we got it. And God, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're going to attend to one little bit of that. And God raised us up, raised us. Not will, not in the second coming. God raised us up in, with Christ Jesus and seated us. Not that he will seat us, he seated us with him 
in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That has to be one of the more bizarre passages in scripture. I very much feel like I'm here. Like I'm here in this church, like I'm in La Mirada, like I'm caught up in all the different joys and travails of life, in the sufferings of, well, in the joys of being able to still do math thanks to a helmet. Uh, but you may, I'm, I'm, I am here, I am here. And so are you, for better or for worse, and for richer or for poorer and all that. But this passage says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So who are we? According to Paul, we're seated at the right hand of God with Christ. So there's death and there's descent and the Christian life is shaped by that, but it's also shaped by the ascension and we are raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of the Father with him. Okay. So this passage, it assumes the darkness of the descent of the going into the far country of the prodigal son, that we have the experience like that of a Jew who ends up feeding pigs for a living and living with them. That prodigal son passage is thinking in terms of being a Jew, having to feed pigs. That's the humiliation. It's not just that I've lost everything. It's that I've lost everything and now I'm living with and feeding pigs and envying them. Read the prodigal son thinking, oh, if I were a Jew... And then you begin to get that idea. And that's there. We find ourselves in that humiliation. But God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now the heavens, what are those? The heavens are the realm where God's will is done. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The as it is, that's the place where it's done. We are, we are seated in, with Christ in the heavenly realms, where the will of God is done. But what would that look like? To refer again to Dante, when he reaches the top of Mount Purgatory and is nearly, well, he's completed his ascent as far as creation can offer it, he's trying to decide what to do. And and, and one of the the last things his guide tells him, if I'm not mistaken, my memory, is um, Virgil tells him, look, do whatever you want to do. The only way that you can sin here is by going against your own will. You have been so perfected and so purified, the only way that you can sin is by disobeying yourself. Because whatever you want to say is good. Whatever you want to do is good. It must be something like that. Because we're seated with Christ where the will of God is done. And that also means we are seated with him in glory and in power. And now I don't feel a whole lot of glory and power. But that's what Paul's saying. So let's try to play out a few implications of this utterly bewildering passage which defies every element of our experience. Or nearly every element. Okay, first, the Christian life is not primarily negative. It's not about sin and about guilt and about shame. Of course, those have a role. We all know those things, we know them well, and they know us even better. But the Christian life is not about those things. The Christian life's not even primarily about not nodding, about not slipping, not falling, about not stumbling, about not, it's not primarily about a struggle to try to not do things that we shouldn't do. Now it involves those, of course it does. But the Christian life is fundamentally positive. 
The Christian life is about life in the resurrection. It's about being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's about being created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's about doing it's about us doing the good works of raised, glorified, eternal beings. That's what it's about. It's about life in the ascension. But here's the hard part. How do we dare say such things? <laughs> these, are, these, are, uh, these are mad claims. How do we dare say such things when our souls, our bodies, our society must either groan or laugh in the face of such ridiculous claims? Well, I'll do my best. This is the time between the times. This is the moment between the cross and the resurrection where we can look back to one and forward to another and both are true, though one will cease and the other will endure. We're in a doorway. And now for this, we need literature, right? We, 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 need, we, need, we need a story that captures the way that you can be in one place at one time and in another place at the same time. You can be striding through the doorway and as you're striding, everything which is behind you is still true, but you're already seeing and entering the other world on the si other side of that doorway. And in that moment, they were striding between the doorway. Both things are true, but one is passing and one is coming. And we're already acting in a, in a way that's fitting and appropriate to the thing which is coming. You might say this is the period of engagement. Or even better, we're already standing at the, at the altar. Right? We're waiting for the Lord to come as we simultaneously experience the reality of sin, death, and crucifixion, and the power and joy of resurrection and eternal life. And both are true in this moment. And we counter that laugh or that groan with an even greater dare, something even more audacious. We acknowledge and we claim our status as those who have been raised and seated with Christ as those on whom he wishes to show the incomparable riches of his grace. We dare to claim that and we see what happens. Does that mean we will get what we want? Sure. Just as much as Jesus got what he wanted in his earthly life. He got everything he wanted and pretty much none of it at the same time. Father, if possible, take this cup from me. But what did he not get? And that dare involves a groan. From Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time, and that it will continue until our Lord returns. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There's a longing and a groaning to the Christian faith. That passing through the doorway is a limp, a stumble. We're, 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 it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a spasm of death as we groan and, and stagger towards that doorway. And Paul here talks about the first fruits of the Spirit. We have a, a deposit, the beginning of something, which we can already see, but not yet really do, but it's on its way. 
but it involves an immense groan on the part of all of creation, all of society, ourselves, our bodies, our souls, everything that we are, is one gigantic groan. And that dare involves only the dimmest sight. Hebrews 2 tells us, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We do not yet see. So here's a part of this bizarre claim that Paul makes. I feel like I'm in this church and in La Mirada, and the things I see are this church and in La Mirada and in California. That's, all my senses are telling me that. But Hebrews is telling me, yeah, but you don't see. If our eyes could be opened, if we could see things as they are, we would see things differently. But that's part of that passing through that doorway. Our senses are passing through it too. And at present, they're dominated by what we think is true around us, which is true, but is passing. So the whole of the Christian faith is a matter of dissent, but even more than that, of assent. And that's shaped by Christ, and then that shapes our own experience. So when we say the creed, this is why I kneel, because I kneel at the point where Christ, or where God becomes man in Jesus Christ, and there's the humiliation. So I kneel with the humiliation of Christ, the great descent. And then I wait until the time of the resurrection and the ascension to rise with him. And what is the Christian life? Probably that point where one knee is just barely off the ground, but the other one is bent. As some of us groan and creak a little bit to get up and stand, that right there probably captures the Christian life better than anything. So as we say the creed, we're also living it as we kneel and then rise. Now the liturgists of the church may know better, but that's a theological defense of why I kneel and rise when I do. And it's worth reading just the, the, the first line from the first hymn that we sang to open our service tonight. It captured so much of what I was hoping to say. Deck thyself, my soul, with gladness. Leave the gloomy haunts of sadness. Come into the daylight's splendor. There with joy thy praises render. Unto him whose grace unbounded hath this wondrous banquet founded. High o'er all the heavens he reigneth, yet to dwell with thee he deigneth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.